Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today is the celebration of the bicentennial of the War of 1812 and the pivotal role Maryland played in the final chapter of the American Revolution. Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're going to travel the Star-Spangled Banner Trail in Maryland by land and by sea. Thanks, dear. Our first stop in Maryland takes us to Baltimore, where we'll learn about the War of 1812 and the Battle of Baltimore, which took place in 1814, as we tour battle sites by sea. The real battle for Baltimore started in 1814 for us. Then it's off to the Star-Spangled Banner Flag House to learn about the life and times of flag maker Mary Pickersgill and the flag that flew over Fort McHenry. The flag was 30 by 42 feet. It was made of first quality bunting. In other words, English wool bunting. Also, we'll take you behind the ramparts of Fort McHenry. The British had the upper hand as far as firepower. Their bombs could reach the fort. And introduce you to Francis Scott Key, the lawyer who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, our national anthem during the bombardment of Fort McHenry. I'm the Star-spangled banner, oh, long may it wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. From here, it's off to southern Maryland, where we'll learn about the two largest naval battles in Maryland's history, the battles of St. Leonard Creek. When this land was donated to the state, the Pattersons didn't know that it happened to be the location of the largest naval engagement that ever took place in Maryland waters. And that happened right off here. And what you're looking at right up and through here is a, a little creek called St. Leonard's Creek. Finally, our last stop on the 1812 War Trail leads us to Maryland's capital, Annapolis, for a behind-the-scenes look at the U.S. Naval Academy and the Navy's role in the War of 1812. Now what they were built here for, one was to protect the city of Annapolis against piracy. Big, big issue in the early 1800s in, in, uh, in, around Chesapeake Bay. But the second thing, though, was to protect the city of Annapolis against the threat of a British invasion. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Despite lacking manpower and ships, on June 18, 1812, President James Madison declared war against the British. War, however, would not reach the Chesapeake Bay region until nearly two years later. After battles in southern Maryland in June of 1814, and the burning of Washington in August of that year, the defense of the nation shifted northward to Baltimore, where a trip on the Star-Spangled Banner Trail begins, at sea, under the command of Captain Gary. And why might you ask that we declare war against a foe that we have already won one against? Well, Britain never really wanted to give up against us. We had a lot of trade going on between here and Europe and even along the coastline. And the British kept imposing more taxes on us. They kept impressing our sailors on our merchant ships that were plying between here and Europe and up and down the coast and taking off, quote-unquote, British subjects and impressing them into the British Navy. And then they taxed us some more. And that was what 
sort of concerned a lot of Americans, and especially President Madison, who on June 8, 1812, declared war against Britain again. Now, as we leave the harbor, which we can't see right now over here on the right-hand side, is a hill called Federal Hill. That hill is behind this restaurant. You can see part of it over here coming up. That's the same hill that was there in 1812, and actually before that, and it is still over there today, and you can go up there. Not much of change except it's got grass on it. In 1812, which we are currently right now, that was a clay hill. Kind of dirty, muddy. Farmlands behind it. No American flag up there. Guns were up there. In fact, that was a post that as ships came up the Chesapeake Bay, both American and other kinds of ships came up, there was a cannon up here. They had cannon up there, and there was cannon all the way up and down the bay who would signal that there's a ship com coming, and they had a special code that they would signal, and it would tell you what kind of a ship it was or what country it was from, so they knew what was coming in the harbor. Baltimore was a town, like I say, of 40,000 people, an extremely busy port. There were ships from all over the world in here and going to all over the world and all around, up and down the court of the United States of what we were, basically East Coast at that point. And there was a lot of product coming in and out of the city. This harbor is very much like it was back then. Take away all these buildings and you're gonna be back in Baltimore, 1812. The day that, by the time we get out here now to Fort McHenry, we're gonna be in 1814. So it's gonna take us two years to get there. So we're going to use a time warp method and just go, as Dean takes us out at a speed limit that we can afford to get there in time, then you'll be able to understand why, what happens in 1814. The real battle for Baltimore started in 1814 for us, or should I say it started in 1812, but it really took place in 1814. The city was all wooden buildings. The shop tower, which you can see somewhere over here, um, can't, right over there. Shop tower is way back over there, uh, behind that tent. Now you can see it. That was here in 1814. That's one of the oldest standing structures in the city, still remaining of that height, anyway. And we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side. The city was uh, was composed of. Uh, this is a saving community, and over here in Fells Point, which we're going to come up to in a little bit, is where the famous Baltimore Clippers were manufactured. And the Baltimore Clippers were very fast sailboats compared to the the, the frigates and the uh, other saving boats that we had. That's all we had. There's no power back in 1814. No power boats at all. All sail. All sail of ships. Everything. Rowboats. In the United States. We had a United States Navy, which became enacted after eight, in, uh, in uh, 1783. When the war ended, that's when the American uh, Congress voted in to have the United States Navy come back again. The Revenue Cutter Service was established in 1790. That's the form that is now what they call the United States Coast Guard. And between the United States, uh, let's say the Revenue Cutter Service and the United States Navy, we had 16 Navy vessels, a few smaller boats, and 14 revenue cutters. The British, who we went to war with, 
had 600 ships, and most of those came over here into the Baltimore area and along our shorelines, and that was our foe that we had to had to fight. They not only had their troops on board, they had animals on board, and they were over here to stay. They were going to take over this city and then take over this country again. In 1812, the Baltimoreans, on the night that Washington, D.C. was burned, could see the lights in, Bal in the, uh, the fires in Washington, D.C., 40 miles away. Was the tension a little high? Because the British kept saying, we're going to burn you to the ground. They used the term rape and pillage and burn. And they were going to burn this city of 40,000 people to the ground. Why? Because they knew that that would destroy the rest of the United States as we knew it then. The third largest city, we've already we've already trashed their uh, their capital building, their whole capital. Everybody moved out of Washington. The president even left. Dolly Madison took the president's uh, picture of George Washington. Everything left Washington except they trashed it and burned it, as you all know. So Baltimoreans were really concerned and scared about their home, this town here, 40,000 souls. And those souls were, were, uh, were made up of men, women, a few soldiers, slaves, servants, you name it, they were here. So what they, what they started doing in, 18, uh, in 1812 is they started to say, well, what are we going to do if, we, if they want to burn Baltimore? And we're going to talk about that a little bit later about what we here in Baltimore did and who participated. One of those Baltimoreans was Mary Pickersgill, the businesswoman and flag maker responsible for sewing the flag that flew over Fort McHenry. Let's go to learn more about the flag that Mary made from her home in Baltimore's Jonestown neighborhood with our docent, Jill. Well, welcome to the flag house. The flag was 30 by 42 feet. It was made of first quality bunting. In other words, English wool bunting came from England, <laughs> strangely to say. If you notice, it has 15 stars and 15 stripes. Those last two are for the states of Vermont and Kentucky. They came into, uh, into the Union by 1792. By 1818, we actually had 20 states, and Congress wisely decided to go back to the 13 stripes with a star for every new state in the Union. And if you notice, there is a way to tell a 13 from a 15-stripe flag even if it's not flying. Take a look at the canton, which is the blue square. On the star-spangled banner, a 15-stripe flag, it rests on a red stripe. On a 13-stripe flag, it rests on a white stripe. So that's the easy way <laughs> to do it. All right. Well, this used to be an entire neighborhood of row homes. We're probably standing in, in somebody's room right now. The foundations are still under the grass here, but it was a thriving middle-class neighborhood. Uh, there were many defenders of Baltimore who lived here. And sadly, Mary's is the last one here on the block. She did share Common Wall, which is the front one there, with her next door neighbor. And their house is about two or three times longer than Mrs. Pickersgill's. So they were all about the same width and some the same height, but many were different lengths. Mary actually owned it outright by 1820. Somebody owed her money. So he signed a half interest, or signed over his half interest of the house, and a few year, or a year or so later, his brother sold the other half for $700. Can't get that good a deal today. <laughs> so, well, let's go on over to the house. 
Mary's exploits as a flag maker are widely known, but this enterprising woman had a remarkable story as a well-schooled entrepreneur who, in many ways, was ahead of her times. Let's learn about Mary as we tour her home with the help of our docent, Jill. But I want to welcome you to Mary's house. It's built around the year 1793. She moved here in 1807 with her daughter, Caroline. Uh, this is uh, about two years after her husband, John Pickersgill, who had been a merchant, uh, passed away in London. Mother Rebecca had been living here already, probably running boarding homes. And uh, Rebecca moved in with Caroline and Mary and began a flag-making business, the first advertised flag-making business here in the city of Baltimore. Not bad. They also took in boarders. They advertised the room upstairs as pleasant and healthful. It's very neat. I like that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, wherever you go, yeah. At least the window's open, you know. <laughs> those are good, too. Walmart's. Uh, that, well, you know, the thing is, we don't have Walmart in those days. We didn't really. And if you did go out to buy your clothes or something, it always cost a little more than if you made it at home because that was always added, added value, I guess they call it. Uh, if we are looking for flags, say we are part of a militia and we need a flag to march behind, to rally around, to let us know where our commander is, we need ships, or not ships, flags, colors for our ship uh, to let people know where we're from, what company we represent, uh, what message we have to say. So we come to Mrs. Pickersgill's door and uh, we'd be led into the parlor, which is right this way. Our parlor would have been like Mary's business office. This is where she'd have greeted us as customers. We'd have sat here at her desk. The clock also belonged to Mary. And we would discuss the type of flags we needed. Flags, first and foremost, talk to us. They tell us all sorts of things. What company is our ship representing? Who owns us? This is for the Giddings Company. They like trademarks today. You know, like the golden arches and the little uh, target sign and such. There you go. Designs would have been painted on, so much simpler to do that. She worked in wool bunting, she worked in linen, silk sometimes, cotton, believe it or not, was even more expensive than linen. So she worked in various fibers and fabrics. Uh, I've got a little one here too, another little one. I like this one. Got a little star on it. So that would tell me whose company was coming into harbor. There was an observatory on top of Federal Hill, and they would see the ships coming in, they would raise that company's flag to let everybody know who was arriving, who was departing. Also, on your ship, you had signal flags. Those are the smaller ones. Now, these were only representing numbers, 0 through 9. So if you had to say something, you had to find the basically international code, as I understand. I like to tell the children that this one, 9473, means the captain wants more pepperoni on his pizza. <laughs> Very important. Yes, yes, this is Captain Peters. He's coming into harbor. That's, children never believe me when I say flags talk to us, but they do. They tell us all sorts of things, and it was very important. This is the only way people could communicate on the high seas until you got close enough to yell at each other, but even then, that was kind of hard to do. Now, the receipt. Very important. I think it's even more important than our mortgage here. This is a copy. We do have the original. And it tells us a lot of information. You folks can come on in, too. i got plenty of room. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know that Mary Pickersgill lived in this house. I'll let you pass it on down. I know that she was a flag maker. I've seen the city archives. I've seen the newspapers. 
I know that she was asked to make that flag because Major Armistead said he wanted a huge flag. Uh, she was asked to make two. The large one that I call the garrison flag was 30 by 42 feet. The smaller one was a storm flag, 17 by 25 feet. That flies most of the time and especially during bad weather. And since it was raining during the Battle of Baltimore, that was probably the flag that was flying. By 9 o'clock the next morning on the 14th of September, the flag that Mr. Key saw that inspired him as he's sailing back into Baltimore Port was Mary's large garrison flag. Was it flying or was it draped? No, it was flying. They had, yes, they had a, a shipmaster actually build the, um, the uh, flagpole. And they, several years ago, they found the original foundation, a couple, a couple decades, I think, back in the 60s, they found the original foundation, and a gentleman actually acquired uh, period tools and remade a flagpole. I think they're probably replacing it with another period-type flagpole uh, for the bicentennial that's coming. Oh, thank you. Well, like I said, she was paid $574.44. $405.90 for the big flag and $168.54 for the smaller flag. The men picked it up in August of 1813. So if you want to backdate about six weeks, she's sewing this thing, 400 fine yards of wool bunting, in midsummer, June, July, and August. It gets kind of hot here in Baltimore, just a bit. They picked it up, delivered it to Fort McHenry. It served its purpose a year and a month later. She didn't get paid until the 27th of October, 1813. That's all right. It's the government. She did get paid, though. Her niece Eliza signed for it, for the money. So it also tells me the girls in the house were educated. And I think that's what gave Mary a leg up with her abilities to have a business. She was educated. It was about that time that people were starting to think, you know, everybody needs to be educated. Uh, Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration, began a girls' school in Philadelphia. We have no proof yet. Mary may have attended the school. Uh, just a lot of new things were starting, but this education was very, very important uh, in providing Mary with the, you know, with the ability to have her business, take care of her family, keep a roof over their head and such. Both she and her mother were a bit ahead of their time. You know, they, they were the CEOs, basically, of their little flag business here. Coming up, we'll visit Fort McHenry, where the flag sewn by Mary Pickerskill flew during the Battle of Baltimore and inspired Francis Scott Key's Star-Spangled Banner. The British had the upper hand as far as firepower. Their bombs could reach the fort. Next on World Footprints. Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanya and Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to World Footprints Radio. Consider NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall for your shopping needs. There's a huge selection of stores to shop, and more stores are added weekly. Recent surveys show that more and more shoppers are looking in stores and then buying online. Shop NationwideMall.com from the comfort of your living room. Have an online store? NationwideMall.com is always looking to add more stores to complement the needs of our shoppers. That's NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace 
for sales on travel essentials and services. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprint Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. On September 13, 1814, British Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane ordered the British Royal Navy to attack Fort McHenry. For 25 hours, the fort withstood more than 1,500 mortars in an attack that did not break the will of the Americans. The next day, the Battle of Baltimore was over, and Fort McHenry's place in American history was secure. Let's learn more about this national shrine from Dr. William Beans. The British were two miles. They, two miles away, they could reach the fort. But these guns over here in the water battery could had a range of only a mile and a half. The British had the upper hand as far as firepower. Their bombs could reach the fort. Uh, Major Armistead estimated between 15 and 1,800 bombs and rockets were fired during this 25-hour bombardment period. The casualty rate here was kept low. Four men killed outright, 24 wounded. As is often the case, the weather had an influence on the outcome of the battle. As I mentioned earlier, pouring down rain. So what did it do to those, some of those bombs? It put out their fuses. And they came in as a solid ball rather than exploding and becoming shrapnel and raining down on the men. They could have been more deadly if they had actually exploded. I mean, as I always tell the school kids, you still want to duck out of the way <laughs> with a 180 to 200 sphere, a 80 pound, 180 to 200 pound sphere coming down on you between you. You don't want to get, you know, hit by one of those. So you're going to be ducking that. But it is pretty remarkable. And ca- the casualties, as I said, four t- killed, 24 wounded. Damages to the fort. One of the buildings hit was the barn-shaped structure, which you see there, which was the main powder magazine for the storage of gunpowder. And uh, one of the first orders of business after the British depart, Major Armistead says, we've got to secure that magazine and uh, so they strengthened it. The side walls are about 10 feet thick with solid brick, just in case the British might possibly return. The other thing is his quarters is right next to the powder magazine. So I think he's thinking about number one there, too, uh, for his uh, safety's sake. Now, jumping ahead, I always point out to people when they tour Fort McHenry, it did not suddenly become a national park the day after the 1814 attack. It went on to serve as an active military post off and on for over a hundred years. So what you see here today 
is a result of the evolution or the ongoing history of the fort rather than that moment in time. So one of the biggest changes that you have are right in front of you, and you can step up on top of the wall here, or the rampart, as uh, Mr. Key called it, the walls of the fort, and look out and see what's known as a Civil War gun battery. Major Armistead would have loved to have had a couple of these. He could have blown the British out of the water out there. Uh, but the best he had was the smaller uh, pieces over, over uh, in the water battery. And uh, the buildings themselves, the barracks, 1814, they were only a story and a half tall with gabled roofs and dormer windows. We'll be giving you a park brochure and you'll see in their illustration of the fort as we believe it looked during the British attack. Uh, but today, this again reflects the ongoing history with the second story added uh, and uh, changes. I always say, you know, changes are similar to what we do in houses. You add on a room, you, the family grows, you finish off. Uh, the basement or whatever. The commanders of the fort here did the same thing to update uh, uh, the appearance of the fort with better firepower and so forth. Now by the time of the Civil War, Fort McHenry really was outdated as a defense of the city. By that time the city had grown around the fort. We've got more other forts built down river to the left of the center span of the key bridge is Fort Carroll that was built in the 1840s. Ironically, one of the engineers on the construction of Fort Carroll, a gentleman by the name of Robert E. Lee, he was with the Army Corps of Engineers and helped engineer the construction of Fort Carroll. During the Spanish-American War, we build more forts uh, down near the mouth of where the river empties into the bay, Fort Smallwood, Fort Howard, and Fort Armistead, named for uh, the commander of the fort here. Fort McHenry's role during the Civil War, Baltimore, the whole state of Maryland is really a divided city. Basically, you have very strong sentiments for the Confederacy here in, in Maryland and in Baltimore in particular. And as a result of that, martial law is established to keep the city in check. And some of the guns in, of the fort indeed were pointed not from the enemy that might come from without, but from the, toward the city, from the enemy that might be in. And the, that, the citizens were constantly reminded by not only the fort commander here, but there was a fort built on top of uh, Federal Hill, which overlooks the Inner Harbor, that, you know, these guns can be fired to, to the city if need be. Hmm. So Fort McHenry's primary role during the Civil War is as a detention camp or prison camp for Confederate sympathizers as well as... Confederate soldiers as the war progressed. Some of these sympathizers are well-known citizens of the area. Uh, 
the mayor of the city, the police commissioner, uh, Maryland, some Maryland legislators to help prevent Maryland from seceding and becoming a part of the Confederacy. They are arrested and jailed here, some of them here at Fort McHenry. There was the editor of a local paper with very strong Confederate sentiments, and uh, this editor found himself here. This would be Frank Howard, Frank Key Howard. He was the grandson of Francis Scott Key. He did time here at the fort. Even a, a grandson of George Armistead, uh, the commander uh, of the fort. About a week before the Battle of Baltimore, a young Washington lawyer named Francis Scott Key, along with Colonel John Skinner, sailed out of Baltimore Harbor to secure the release of her friend and patriot, Dr. William Beans. With Beans' freedom secured, the British were afraid to let Key, Beans, and Colonel Skinner leave, for the Brits were just days away from bombing Fort McHenry. Unable to leave, Key and the others waited aboard a truce ship from which Key penned the words of the Star-Spangled Banner, which in 1931 would become the national anthem. Let's go back in time to September 14, 1814, as Key witnessed Fort McHenry's bombardment from the ship's deck as reenacted by Fred Taylor. The defense of Fort McHenry, that's what I shall call it. The defense of Fort McHenry. I couldn't finish it, but I will. When we dock again in Baltimore, I did. I finished it. I think it's quite good. No one else probably cares. I give it to my brother-in-law. He was with the Baltimore principals at Fort McHenry, Judge Joseph Hooper Nicholson. He took it and had it printed. Somebody changed the name. But writing the first verse, looking at the flag, I knew that there had to be more. So I wrote a second verse. On the shores dimly seen through the midst of the deep, through the shores of the... Yes, very good. I'll tell them how much I saw the flag now. I can see it. I can see through the clouds, through the rain. Oh, yes, I was a ways out, still on the truce ship when I saw it. But I think there should be more. I should tell the British just how bad they are. I continue the poem, but it's not done. I still need another verse. Being a man of great faith, almost a minister before I studied law I wanted to pay homage to the supreme being oh let's be it ever when Freeman shall stand between one's own home and war's desolation 
blessed with victory and peace. May the heaven rescue land praise the power that made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we best when our cause is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner, oh, long may it wave, o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Next, it's off to Southern Maryland to the site of two major naval battles that were decisive for the Americans in winning the War of 1812. When this land was donated to the state, the Pattersons didn't know that it happened to be the location of the largest naval engagement that ever took place in Maryland waters. And that happened right off here. And what you're looking at right up and through here is a, a little creek called St. Leonard's Creek. As World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Cheryl Ann and I'm a big fan of World Footprints Radio. You should listen. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. The largest naval battle on Maryland waters took place on St. Leonard Creek on June 26, 1814, near what is the Jefferson Patterson Park and Museum, a Maryland archaeological site. With the help of Dr. Ralph Eshelman, co-author of In Full Glory Reflected, Discovering the War of 1812 in the Chesapeake, gives us some background on the battles of St. Leonard Creek. When this land was donated to the state, the Pattersons didn't know that it happened to be the location of the largest naval engagement that ever took place in Maryland waters. And that happened right off here. And what you're looking at right up and through here is a little creek called St. Leonard's Creek. And right out here is the Patuxent River. And for those of you that are not from Maryland, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. But the Patuxent is the largest intrastate river in Maryland. It's 110 miles long. It drains 10% of the state. It's considered the state's river because of that. It's totally within the confines of the state of Maryland. It's also the river that was used by the British in 1814 to come up and land their troops that eventually marched on Washington, D.C. 
So back when this property existed in 1813, 1814, they would have been seeing British vessels going up and down this river. They would have seen over 4,000 British invading troops coming up this river, landing at Benedict and marching on Washington, D.C. Yes, so upriver is that direction. Benedict, Washington, D.C., that's all up in this direction. You go in that direction only about two and a half miles, and you're at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And we're going to be next visiting Sodderley Plantation, which existed in the War of 1812. Forty-eight slaves escaped from that plantation and went to the British. And we're going to go there, and we have to go all the way down across. Can you just make out through the trees? There's a bridge. <clears throat> we're going to go across that bridge and all the way back to right over here. That's where you're going to be next. You're in Calvert County. That is St. Mary's County. Okay, so the Battle of St. Leonard's Creek, I don't have the time to get into it because there's just more to do than we can really afford to do. But the significance of it is that the Americans really had no defense against the superior British. The British had the largest navy in the world during the War of 1812. We essentially had nothing. So what did we try to do to defend ourselves here in the Chesapeake Bay? They came up with what they referred to as a little mosquito fleet of 50 and 75 foot barges that would then go up against ships like brigs and frigates. You can imagine, that's not a very fair fight. But the significance of the Mosquito Fleet is that being small barges, they could be rowed, they could be sailed if they had wind in a favorable direction, they could go out, they could hit, and then withdraw back to the shallows. But the British weren't stupid either. When the British found out that the Americans were building these things, what did the British do? They built exactly the same thing. And so right here in this creek, Joshua Barney, who is the commander of the U.S. Chesapeake Flotilla, he is blockaded in here because he sought the safety of St. Leonard's Creek, a very great place to defend yourself because you see how high we are on both sides, and it's a very narrow entrance. So it was easy to defend the creek, but once he gets in here, the British blockade the creek. Now Barney can't get out. And so what do the British do? They begin to send up wave after wave of these barges and they even took schooners and towed the schooners because they were too big to be sailed up into this creek but towed them in so that they served as gun platforms and began to try to fight the Americans and this went back and forth for days and the British could not successfully bring Joshua Barney out so Barney eventually becomes very very upset of the fact that the British now decide a new tactic what is the tactic we're not going to bother you anymore. We're happy having you blockaded in there. Instead, we're going to go up and down this river, and we're going to attack every plantation and every tenant house that we can. And the local population is going to be so upset that they're going to put so much pressure on the government, you're going to be forced to come out and fight us. And that's exactly what the Americans did. And that's known as the Battle of St. Leonard's Creek. So during the night, they actually built a battery that possibly could have been right here. Some people believe it's probably maybe where the actual house is now. So when this house was built, they destroyed the actual battery site. Everybody know what a battery is? It's an earthwork where you have the cannons behind it. They erected this in the middle of the night. The British had no idea that these batteries were up here. Five o'clock in the morning, they agreed that they're going to open fire against the British that are anchored out here. At the same time, Barney's going to come down the creek and attack. So it's going to be like a two-pronged attack. The problem is, is that during the night, as they're building the earthworks, a message is sent to Barney saying, we're not sure we're going to be ready in time. 
So Barney doesn't bring all of his boats all the way down. He's a mile up the creek. This creek is three miles in that direction. He's only a mile down the creek. At 5 o'clock in the morning, he hears the cannonading going on. The batteries had opened up. He says, you know what, guys? we got to get in these boats. we got to get down there as fast as we can. And it really worked out to the advantage of the Americans because the British are anchored in such a way, not expecting these batteries to be here, to be firing down the creek. So these batteries open up at the first light in the morning, and they're hitting the British down there. By the time the British can readjust to fire back, then Barney comes down, hits them from another direction. This went back and forth. Both sides essentially withdrew at the same time. However, the British went down to what's called Point Patience, and we'll see that when we go across the bridge, because some of their ships were so badly uh, hit by the American gunfire that they need to put them up on the beach at high tide, let the low tide come out and do repair work on the bottom of the hulls. That's called careening. So what does Barney do? He says, okay, guys, if you have already opened up the blockade, I'm going to freely come out in the river, and I'm going to head up north. And that's what he did. And then the British continued to follow him all the way up, and eventually the American flotilla was scuttled. Sodderley Plantation, the oldest standing plantation house in Maryland, played a significant role in the War of 1812. Sodderley's education director, Jeannie Pirtle, offers some background on the historic plantation. In our historic core, there's 95 acres of the historic site. Uh, at one time, at the height of colonial period, in about 1750, it was 7,000 acres. So it was a large uh, plantation, one of the largest slaveholding plantations in Maryland. You'll see different buildings around our site uh, from different eras. Um, some of our buildings are from the early 20th century, some are the 18th century, some are the 19th century. So uh, a lot of different history that you can see left their footprint here. First of all, we're going to go to the riverside so you can see where you just came from. Um, so come with me. Sodderley Plantation is significant in the War of 1812 because here the British turned back 300 American militia and 39 slaves were taken by the British to fight in their army, some of whom ultimately escaped to Canada and the Caribbean where they were granted land and their freedom. Part of the story Jeannie shares. So if you're a slave here at Sodderley, you are always, uh, you're never secure. Uh, there's always the threat that your family is going to get separated, that your children are going to be sold out from under you, that um, uh, you may or may not get to visit your, your spouse. Uh, so we keep that in mind at all times. So that is the kind of atmosphere. So when the British declare war and they're going up and down the river, uh, we, we know of uh, at least... Uh, Peregrine Young, this is, this is an actual document. After the war, John Rousey Plater uh, made a claim. Now, uh, there was a lot of wrangling whether the British meant they were going to uh, uh, reimburse for slaves as part of his property, but it was finally decided that they were. And it took uh, a couple of years for John Rousey Plater and other owners to gather up documentation of the slaves that they lost and this is a claim that John Ralph B. Plater put in, and it has the names of 49 slaves, but only one of them is not from Sodderley. One of them is from a land he owned in Calvert County. So we have 48 slaves in this document. And this is Maryland State Archives Online, and you can click, click, and find this. Um, uh, 
every, a lot of documentation is coming online now, uh, more and more as we speak. Um, and so it gives a, a whole lot of information here. It gives the name, it gives the age, it gives what John Rousey Plater says they're worth. It gives the ships that they left on, the Loire and the uh, Severn, uh, just a whole wealth of information. Um, and it mentions <coughs> two slaves in here, Peregrine Young and James Bowie. And so if you have that card, uh, they were domestic slaves here in the summer of 1814. And uh, they were listed as, uh, James Bowie and Peregrine Young was listed as a most valuable servant. Uh, $700 is what uh, he claimed uh, that he was worth. Um, and there's different types of work that slaves do on a plantation. There's domestic slaves, people that work uh, closest to the family, like laundresses, cooks, manservants, maidservants, nannies, and such. And then you have uh, skilled slaves, like carpenters, blacksmiths, and then you have field hands. And so, most uh, ironically, most of our stories of resistance at Sodale come from domestic slaves. Um, so the notion that because if you get better treatment, you're going to stay, that's not true. Especially at Sodale, that's not true. Um, and so Peregrine Young and James Bowie were domestic slaves, very valuable according to John Rousby Plater. But in 1814, they left with the British and they came back armed and uh, they helped over 48 slaves escape over that spring and summer uh, to the British. Now, this was a, a major financial blow to the plantation because now you don't have the labor to work the land. And then combined that with an economic depression later in 1819, they forced the last George Plater to sell the property in 1822. So it went out of Plater hands. Um, so we do know from a British source that what happened to James Bowie. And he uh, was given land in Trinidad by the British. Uh, he was married and he had two children and he died in 1855. So we do know what happened to him. And I happened to hold the card for Peregrine Young. And my choice actually would have been to leave as well. <laughs> Our final leg on the Star Spangled Banner Trail takes us to Annapolis, home of the Naval Academy and a lookout point for British movements during the War of 1812. What they were built here for, one was to protect the city of Annapolis against piracy. Big, big issue in the early 1800s around the Chesapeake Bay. But the second thing, though, was to protect the city of Annapolis against the threat of a British invasion. Next as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Aisha from Connecticut via India. And I would encourage you to listen to World Footprints. It's great radio, so do tune in. Thank you. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with One Brick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services.
Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world. But whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Annapolis, Maryland's capital city and the home of the Naval Academy, which was established in 1808, was spared from British attack during the War of 1812. The State House Dome and areas around the city were key lookouts for British movements, as Naval Academy tour guide Don Lee explains. To start out with, since we're talking about the War of 1812, this is the best spot to do it. The reason for that is, you see this point of land over here where the uh, towers are? That area is called Greenbury Point. Now, this is where the history of, of, of all the, the, the uh, Naval Academy starts over there. Back in 1808, the army built uh, two forts, one on this side of the Severn River, which runs over here. That's a Chesapeake Bay out in the back. Uh, this is called Spa Creek. But these two forts were built here for, 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 uh, for two reasons. One was to uh, protect the city of Annapolis. That's right here. Naval Academy and the city of Annapolis, they, they, they're really close together. Now, the one on this side was called Fort Severn, named the Severn River. The one across the river over there was actually called Fort Madison. Now, what they were built here for one was to protect the city of Annapolis against piracy. Big, big issue in the early 1800s in, 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 around the Chesapeake Bay. But the second thing, though, was to protect the city of Annapolis against the threat of a British invasion. Now, this is 1808. Now, two years later, another fort was built. That was Fort Madison and, and Fort Severn. It was called Fort Nonsense. Now, Fort Nonsense is the only fort that has anything left of the, of the old fort. And it was an earthen fort, so all it is is a, is a couple of trenches and, and uh, some berms. That's all that's left over there over across on Greenbury Point. And now, and nothing happened during the Civil War. I mean, during the uh, Revolution of uh, 1812. We talk about the Civil War here a lot. <laughs> nothing happened in Annapolis. No battles. It's not like Fort McHenry or, or Washington. Nothing happened in Annapolis. What we do have, though, here on, okay, on the Naval Academy, we get, there are two paintings over in Bancroft Hall. Now, Bancroft Hall is it's the dormitory. That's where all the midshipmen where they, uh, they stay over there that I'd like to point out to you. Then there's also the, uh, there's a monument to Macedonia, USS uh, Macedonia. You know, that, just, that, was, that was part of the, uh, the, part of the uh, War of 1812. So that's what we'll try to cover. But this is where it all started right here. Now, 1845, you know, I'm going to talk about this, 1810, uh, when the second fort was, uh, third fort was built. Uh, 1845 then, the Army was going to, going to abandon those forts. I uh, didn't need them anymore. At that time, the Navy wanted to build a, an academy to teach young naval officers like uh, the Army has up at West Point up in New York. So, so when we started then, that was uh, uh, James Pope was our president, our 11th president. Uh, his secretary of the Navy was a gentleman of the name of George Bancroft. Now, George Bancroft was given the job to start the Naval Academy. And when he started here in 1845, they had 50 midshipmen. Now, they're called midshipmen, not cadets. Where that comes from, it's an old English sailing term 
the English would actually, they would, they would station a very young sailor midship, and his job is to make the relay messages before and after the ship between the captain and the crew. In fact, that's where the name midshipman comes from. <clears throat> Today, we've got uh, around 4,500 midshipmen at the Naval Academy. Uh, when it started back in 1845, it was called the Naval School at Annapolis. Uh, 1850, five years later, it was changed to the United States Naval Academy, which is called today. The, um, the faculty then, they had seven. They had, uh, had four military and had three civilians. Today, we have about 600. It's just split about half and half. Uh, when military folks have come here to, to teach, uh, and they're, they're, they're usually engineering-related, because it basically is an engineering school. Uh, they're, they're brought here, and it can be at, at any level. It could be towards the end of the careers. It could be captains, uh, colonels, and so forth. Or it could be even a, uh, an engineer. Uh, they're brought here to teach whatever their specialty is. And typically they're here for three to four years. So rather than going more into the history, let's, let's, why don't we go on up and, and, and cover the, uh, the War of 1812 items that we can talk about. One of the most significant artifacts from the War of 1812 is the Don't Give Up the Ship flag on display at Bancroft Hall, the residential home for the entire brigade of midshipmen. Here, Don shares some of the flag's history. This uh, Don't Give Up the Ship flag. You know, everybody wants to know, what, what is that, what's that all about? Some of you may know what it is. It's about uh, the Battle of Lake Erie. Uh, what was that in September of, uh, of 13, 1813? That's when that occurred. Um, <clears throat> the painting above that, that, that depicts the Battle of Lake Erie uh, in September of, uh, of 1813. Uh, you remember that's when uh, uh, the battle just before this, this battle shows here is a gentleman by the name of uh, Captain James Lawrence. He, was, uh, he, he got into a battle up there. And, and uh, he lost his life. He, just before he died, though, uh, he, he told the, uh, the, the crew, don't give up the ship. Now, before 100 days after that, an uh, associate of his, a 28-year-old Commodore, uh, Commodore Perry, uh, went back to that battle, the, the, the battleground up there, and, and faced the, uh, the, the uh, British squadron. Uh, and what he had done before that is he had this flag made, don't give up the ship. But that's where this name comes from. And he flew it on, the, on that ship. Uh, and they, they call that, that uh, they, they call that uh, the, uh, the, the ship that uh, Commodore Perry was, uh, was head of, they actually call it the Lawrence. Now, <clears throat> during, the, during the Lawrence, and then they, the Lawrence was, was, uh, was, was not destroyed, but it, it, uh, they, had to, they had to abandon it. And they transferred all the, uh, all the uh, crew, uh, including the flag, over to the Niagara. And the Niagara actually flew this flag above the Stars and Stripes. The only time that's ever happened is that this, a flag flew above the Stars and Stripes on the mainsail. And that was happened. Now, this is a replica. This is not the original. This is a replica. If you go over, we go over to the museum, the, the original is over there. They restored it, and after you look at this one, you might be a little disappointed because the colors aren't really... Uh, they, they went through a long process to make it happen. But it is the original. A lot, a lot of stuff that's over there. A couple other items in here. This, this painting up here... That, that, that's a painting of the, uh, uh, the USS Constitution. You know, that, that ship was built about 1890, about uh, 1797. Uh, this shows this shows the battle actually at, uh, down off Brazil during the War of 1812, and, and, they, and there was a battle there. And also, we go over to see the Macedonia a, a monument. We'll, we'll talk about a battle that was in the Azores. But this this shows that that battle. I'm no, sure you know about the. Still around up in Boston. Right? It's still a commissioned sailing ship. It's the only it's the only sailing ship that the Navy has today, and it, that's commissioned. And what has what happens is once a year they actually have to take it out in Boston Harbor and, and sail it around and bring it back. Now the Constellation that's up in Baltimore is not commissioned. 
uh, it's strictly a, you can go aboard it. But th- this is a constitution that's the only, uh, the only commissioned sailing ship uh, still in the United States. And that, that, that depicts that battle off of, off of the coast of Brazil uh, back in, uh, that was back in the December of, uh, of, of uh, 1812 is when that battle occurred. This was, uh, this was uh, no, that was December of 18, 1812. This is September of, of 1813, the battle over here. So that's the story behind the uh, don't give up the ship flag. The Naval Academy houses other War of 1812 artifacts, like those from the captured HMS turned USS Macedonian, as Don tells us. This is really the only monument we have here that's actually uh, about the War of 1812. It's about the uh, USS Macedonian. Uh, you know, Macedonian was not actually a U.S. built ship. It was a, it was a British ship, which HMS Macedonian. And I talked about the uh, I talked about the battle off of Brazil with the Constitution, and the, the other ship, the British ship there was was uh, at, down in Brazil was called the the uh, Java HMS Java that we saw the painting up there. But this one, what happened here is, is the HMS uh, uh, Macedonian. It was, it was traveling down the, near the Azores, and we had a frigate over there. SS United States, much more superior ship. Uh, that they they got into a battle over there, and the uh, the mast was shot off of the Macedonian HMS Macedonian, uh, and so they surrendered. Uh, then the the United States actually bought the uh, Macedonian and brought it up to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and they uh, they uh, uh, fixed fixed it up and then changed the name to USS Macedonian, and it served in the Navy until about 1834 before it was broken up. Now these guns here, these are actual guns from the original, and that's the ship's head up, the, uh, up on the top here, the figurehead. This, this is the actual actual battle of the uh, off the Azores. I see it strange that we had battles in Brazil and uh, and, and off the Azores. Uh, these two guys, the captain of the United States, was uh, uh, got his name now. Cardin was the he was captain of the HMS. Uh, um, Oh, Alvin, no. Alvin, uh, what was his name? His name's name on here. Oh, Decatur, Stephen Decatur. Jesus, uh, remember that? Oh, Stephen Decatur. That Stephen Decatur was the captain of the. Uh, and these guys actually dined together. The Car- captain Carden and and, uh, and Decatur in Norfolk. Decatur and uh, Decatur hosted a uh, dinner with with uh, with the Carden when he came over the Macedonian to Norfolk, and then they, they they talked about their ships, about which one was superior. Uh, then he ended up. Shortly after that, uh, you know, Madison declared the War of 1812, and they both got into battle over there, and uh, the United States won it. Won that Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about the War of 1812 Bicentennial in Maryland and upcoming celebrations, visit starspangled200.org. Or if you'd like more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report of the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and now Pinterest. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again really soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, there are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.